Hello, and welcome to LambdaCast, the podcast about learning functional programming from the perspective of a working developer. I'd like to introduce our cast for this episode. First off, Aaron Johnson. Hello, everyone. He's a newcomer to functional programming who works mainly in .NET. Next is Kat Chuang. Hi. Kat is a designer learning functional programming with Haskell. Next, we have Logan Barnett. Hello. He's a functional JavaScript programmer working on the front end. And I'm your host, David Kuntz. I'm a static functional programming enthusiast working mostly in education. We love hearing from you, so please keep that up. Feel free to send us email to contact at lambdacast.com, or you can follow us or send us messages on Twitter. We are at lambdacast. If you want to talk to us more directly, we are part of a Slack community, the FP Chat Slack community, and on there, there's a LambdaCast channel. The link to that is in the show notes. And finally, if you think we're doing a good job and want to support what we're doing, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash LambdaCast. And we have some people to thank for this episode. Marcus Nielsen, Stephen Lowe, Ted Yaviskurt, Michael Myers, Simon Bukowski, Paul Naranja, Paul Brabin, and Jason Suter. We really appreciate your support, and please keep it up. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, people. And this episode, our topic is on lazy evaluation. So, uh, I believe our our step topic for this was "It's good to be lazy." Was was our uh, tagline? And I can get behind that, 100%. Yeah, it's a sentiment we can all very much get behind. Isn't lazy one of the first of the three virtues? Right, and and I think a lot of programmers are we're used to this like pro- lazy in the good way kind of sense, right? Like that we automate things or we, or we fix things. So this isn't quite that kind of lazy, although there is a, a sense of that going on here. Uh, so my first question would be, how is lazy? What is that even referring to? Lazy evaluation, like lazy as in contrast to what? Can I take the first guess since I'm most likely to be wrong? Sure. All right, so I did my best to not know anything about this, as, you know, my role on the show requires me to do that, so I tried to do my best to stay in the dark. Contractually obligated to not know anything about this? Yes, exactly. That's why I'm here. But I think that laziness has to do with how functions are evaluated and whether or not they're done immediately or when they need to happen. And that's not, not just functions. Like, sometimes that would be the case with, the, like, a list you might not actually have that list available in memory until it actually needs to be accessed. And so it's kind of a deferred way of getting at data or getting at doing something as opposed to doing it immediately, which would be kind of the standard way of doing things, which I believe is called strict evaluation. That is definitely correct. So, yeah, it it has to do with the evaluation order and when a value is sort of computed, like when a computation needs to take place. And you mentioned the word deferred. I think that really, if you want to hang this concept on something, the word deferred is the way to go. It's not that it's been forgotten or it's not going to happen. It's that it hasn't happened yet. And the yet is really determined by how you're using it. So I'm right, but that's not great for the podcast because I was supposed to be wrong. No, 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 that's that's totally fine. Uh, but but there's some subtlety. <laughs> there's some subtlety in, in what it means, like the implications of this. Because if we think about it, uh, every programming language you likely have any experience in will be stripped. And the, and the way we can kind of get a sense for this is uh, if you say, you know, var x equals foo, and like foo's a function with some arguments, whatever, 
the question is, do you expect the CPU to have carried out the computation to produce the value of x right then, or do you expect that it's waiting until later? And, and maybe we don't think of it that way most of the time, but but we kind of have a sense that probably the CPU went and did the thing, right? If it if x equals 2 plus 2, then we expect 4 to have been calculated somewhere in a register and plopped into memory so that a 4 is sitting there ready to go. That's what I would think, yeah. Uh, and so that's strict evaluation. As soon as sort of uh, you have given enough instructions for something to be carried out, it is, and it's done that way so that the value is ready for when you need it later on. If this was a... Uh, lazy version of that, what we would instead produce is x would be a function like, well, there's, there's lots of ways to do that, but an easy way to encode this, let's say in JavaScript, would be x is a function that takes no arguments and whose body is return 2 plus 2. So it's, it's a zero argument function, which means you can just invoke it very easily to produce its value, but it doesn't, that actually 2 plus 2 doesn't happen until you run the function. So you can pass around the sort of computation as data, and then when you need a value, you invoke it with, with no arguments, or unit or something like if you're in Elm or, or PureScript or Haskell, and you get your value out. Does that kind of make sense? Uh, so it's almost like a push versus pull kind of, like say if you were to query a database, you get the result right then and there. Um, whereas it sounds like in lazy evaluation, you have a property that exists, but Kind of, it's just there until you need it. You're saying you pull the result out when you want it versus it kind of being pushed to you? Right. Yeah, and I think with your database, it's like you could go and ask for the entire result set right then, or you could almost like get a cursor and then like move step by step. I know like that's probably not a great example because yeah. cursors have a lot of performance issues, but it's kind of like you're only getting as much data as you need. Mm-hmm. And or or so like you do limit one or something like that, right? So that you only get like one value at a time or some or, or a small number of values at a time, versus like right. get all. Of them. And to, not to push this too far with the database thing, but wouldn't isn't it kind of or maybe it's not that you're not, you're just storing the SQL statement almost, like you're not even get you're not even touching the database. If you're deferring, then you're not even going and doing Absolutely. that action. You're you're saying okay, when I need to, I'll go get this information from the database. But I don't need it right now. I'm just gonna. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good metaphor. Okay. Yeah. If you're if you're doing link in C sharp, and I think it's streams in Java, that's actually exactly what it does. Hmm. Is you know you go and you do all these kind of like listy operations on an enumerable that represents your your database connection, and um, it will not actually make a trip out to the database until it finally has to operate on that data. Like until it needs something concrete, you can you can bundle these computations and chain them and, you know, say, like, I I want only ones that have these conditions and then, you know, apply a new set of conditions to it later. And eventually you're going to say, well, I need, I need a list of them now. And then it says, okay, let, let me go to the database. But until then you can keep, like, blocking on all these, like, computations, which wind up being just a, a SQL query generator in the end. That matches my understanding of it as well in the, on the link side of things. Yeah, I'd, I'd say Link is probably one of the places where lazy uh, gets put put in the face of sort of standard working developers, where you have to like understand that concept. And I know that certainly bit me a few times, where I had a Link uh, Link expression, and I was doing dot where dot selects dot you know those sorts of things, and I never forced it to happen at the end. And I wondered like why nothing was happening, like why the the effect wasn't happening. Mm. 
Um, and it's because I never like two-listed it at the end. I never forced the computation. So it was a description of what should happen should that data be needed, and I was never actually asking for the data because I was sort of building up very incrementally, mm-hmm. and I I wasn't to the part yet where I ex- needed the final value at the other end, but I wondered why my data source wasn't being right. Worked. And it's because I never actually, because it was too smart. It was like, yeah, <laughs> why would I query the data base if you're not actually using this data? That would be right. s- silly. An interesting use for like lazy stuff is um, infinite data sets because you can have an infinite data set that's a, uh, it's effectively a computation. You can say, give me all the countable in- positive integers and that's infinite, right? But, oh yeah, only give me the top 50, right? And so you can model it in particular ways where it's like, I have all these numbers, but I only want a certain subsection of them. And at some point when it does its lazy computation, it'll skip the infinite part and just do those 50. Well, I mean, you're saying it'll skip the infinite part. It's it's just that it won't run into the problem of it being infinite, right? Right, right. Because it'll never try to just like go to it the It won't end. be like, okay, let me buffer everything that you have in your memory until I don't have any more and then crash. That's not going to happen. It'll only load the parts that it absolutely needs. Right. Yeah, and an example of this would be uh, – so first, real quick, we should talk about where this is found in programming languages. So we mentioned link. It's definitely present in link. Um, a lot of collection library type stuff can support these concepts. Um, but broadly speaking, it's only really found in Haskell. Uh, that's uh, as a language, like a pervasive thing. Um, I'm, there are other languages, but um, for, from the perspective of languages you've heard of or could use for like production, Haskell is really the only one that has sort of got this built in. And the reason they built it in is kind of funny. Uh, they wanted to enforce purity, but they didn't necessarily trust themselves to not ever take a shortcut. But if you have, if everything in your whole language is lazy, which means it can happen, it'll happen when it needs to happen, right? Like when when the evaluation strategy decides that, hey, I finally need the results of that computation. And if there could be side effects inside that computation, it means you have absolutely no chance whatsoever of predicting the order in which your side effects will happen. And that sounds awful. That sounds like the worst possible situation. If you have a bunch of side effects and you can't tell what order they're going to happen in. So they, um, they called it wearing the hair shirt. Uh, which is a phrase they use to basically, like, it's going to keep them honest. They're going to put this on, and I actually don't know the, the meaning of the, the phrase hair shirt. But <laughs> I've heard that a few times, the, the whole hair shirt thing. Uh, but it's like keeping you honest um, in, in the process that you're doing it. So laziness was sort of added to Haskell and then turned out to be pretty cool. Like, they cared about the purity. Um, they, they cared about the laziness as well, but uh, you'll see a, a combination between laziness and purity often that those two go together really well. Because without purity, laziness is really scary. <laughs> and once you have purity, laziness makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of uh, easy wins. Like, uh, you know, we, we know it's a pure computation, therefore we can do it at any time or any number of times. That's a property of a, of a pure function, right? Um, in which case, that fits nicely with lazy evaluation. Um, so that's why you'll see it um, in the context of Haskell so much. All right, with that said... Let's talk about examples of it. Um, Logan, you were talking about infinite streams of things, uh, lists or streams. We have natural numbers would be an example. Any kind of uh, sequence like Fibonacci, you could say, create this recursive version of Fibonacci that just, it, or it doesn't have to be recursive, it could be like a, a generator style um, while loop or whatever for loop that just goes and produces new values every time you ask for one, and it just goes forever. And so if you tried to like for each that thing, you're going to be in trouble. Right, that, that, that is going to just kill, kill that thread, right? It's never going to come back. But if you say, give me the first 10 elements of it, 
then it'll run 10 times and it'll stop because it's, it's lazy. So it's only producing values each time you ask for one. So, so that's how we can use like these lazy structures. I know that I've uh, used this when um, I wanted to put, I had a list of items and I wanted to tag them with like an index. So let, let's say I have a bunch of, uh, a bunch of strings, like a list of strings. And I want to tag them with like 0, 1, 2, 3, 4. And when I tag, when I say tag, what I mean is pair them together in a tuple. So I'm going to go from list of strings and a list of numbers, basically, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4. And I want to like zip them together. There's a zip operation that takes two lists right and it just combines them into tuples. Well, I don't know how many elements are in the list. So I could create a list of numbers that's 0 to the length of the list. But I don't need to do that. I just say I have the list of numbers that is 1. In Haskell, you can say 1 dot dot. And it's just a range from 1 to infinity. So I, I zip those two lists together. And uh, in Haskell, you, it stops. Uh, the zip operation stops once you run out of elements in one of the lists. So I have an infinite list and a finite list. I'm going to get a finite number of things back. Hmm. Right. If I tried to zip two infinite lists, I'd be in trouble. Right. Is Haskell pretty good about warning about that? Uh, a warning that you can't zip two infinite things? Well, I mean... And you can try. Oh, actually, sorry. I, I'm, I'm wrong. Um, I, I just misspoke. I could absolutely zip two infinite lists. As long as I don't try to for each, like traverse the, the resulting infinite list. Mm, got it. But I could take two infinite lists, zip them, and then ask the first five things. That would be totally fine. Because they're both, they're all lazy. Like we have two layers of lazy now. The zip, li- the zipped list is itself lazy, right? Well, all, everything's lazy in Haskell, but, or almost everything. Even asking for the first five things isn't, like that even can be lazily evaluated, right? Um, so in Haskell, everything is lazy until you actually need to produce a computation. And usually this will come as a result of an effect. Like, I'm going to write something to the screen. Or I'm going to put something in a database. Well, I really need the value at that point. That That is a strict operation. And we talked about some of the downsides of lazy evaluation. At some point, you will get to a strict operation that has to happen right then. That will force the evaluation of a whole bunch of things. And it kind of propagates back through this whole chain of deferred evaluations and starts forcing them to happen and producing a value until you get your final resulting value. So it would force the the two lists to produce the first couple values, and then the zip operation would happen to produce the list of tuples, and we produce enough of those for me to like print them out, like let's say I'm printing the first five or something like that. Um, it would force just enough of those to happen. I'm glad we're going into this detail because I always heard that Haskell um, is really good for uh, high-performance computing, and this makes sense now, especially for the big data applications where maybe they just want to process a subset of the data available, and this is this lazy evaluation helps with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, if you're doing it in Python, for example, uh, you might be uh, run into problems all the time where you try to do something with a large data set and you blow up because you're out of memory really easily because it tries to hold the whole data set in memory and tries to operate on all of it at once. Um, where with this, you can, with lazy evaluation, you can often have a very large data set but only work on some small part of it at a time and, and keep your memory usage much more efficient. I heard of something, um, I don't know if this is related at all, it's called memoization. Mm-hmm. It's, and I think that's related to memory somehow, but I, I don't actually know if it's related to the lazy evaluation aspect. I could see how it plays with it. Uh, memoization is basically like, uh, someone was telling me about how they'd been playing around with the Haskell program once, and the computation took several seconds to run. And then he ran it again, the application came back immediately. And it's because he gave it the exact same inputs. And it was able to, basically it memoized those, meaning that if you've got pure functions, if you've got this this uh, 
item potency expectation. You can feed something the same input and get the same output. So instead of us running the computation again, we're just going to save the output and match it to the input. Oh, cool. Like in a lookup table. It's just a cache, effectively. It's an auto-caching system. It's like a cache that's internal to the function. Oh, yeah. nice. And, and so I it's think, trivial to memoize any pure function. Yeah. I think Haskell kind of does that automatically here and there. Yeah, I'm actually not sure where, where that kicks in. I know that was something that they were looking at for a while, but I think they backed off on that because it's uh, a little hard to predict when it's a good idea to do it. Well, it sounds like it's like a, it's JIT-like, right? Like it's, it's this mysterious thing that you don't get to know when it runs necessarily. Right, but you could, uh, you could force memoization, um, on it pretty easily. If you, if you know something should be memoized, you know, like this is a pretty computationally expensive thing. We're okay trading holding on to every result that's produced over the lifetime of the program, or having some strategy of, like, holding on to the last 100 results. Especially if it gives you a means to invalidate that cache at some point. Right. What sort of applications are great for memoization or these uh, lookup tables? I have um, a program I'm working on right now as a, as a spare time thing where I'm running... Uh, it's, it's doing game asteroid generation stuff, and I've got stacks and stacks of generator strategies that I have an editor I put together for, and I, I really love it. It's a great project. But every single frame, it regenerates the entire asteroid, which computationally can be very expensive to do. And one of the things I'm going to be doing very soon here is start wrapping those in memoization functions so that, hey, here's the same input, here's the same seed that you had from last time, and then it just pops out the entire asteroid immediately because it just saved it. And I can keep rerunning the same functions that I had before. I'm just not actually running them. Yeah, if you look at like a React, like a React component, like a pure component, that were to get some some props and then give you back some HTML, there's no reason you couldn't cache that output and then look at it the next time and say, are these exactly the same inputs, the same props? And if they are, I don't need to re-render that thing. I've already got it. And Recompose has a utility specifically for that, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's definitely people applying these kinds of things to, like, in the JavaScript world, at least, I see it happening. So another thing you touched on, Khan, was, like, the purity related to laziness. And if it's such a high concern for, like, the theoretical purity, then, like, how do we, like, make sure it operates? Because you also mentioned that you don't want to have the function run until it's necessary. So I just want to point out, I think that the Haskell world also came up with the quick check to help with testing the functions that they write. So I just thought that was cool. For, for them to have done quick check? Quick check to help with the purity, helping with them um, being able to stay pure because they don't have to use, or I guess they can remain in that theoretical like purity I guess I don't... Uh, are you saying that as it relates to purity, not necessarily uh, laziness or lazy evaluation? Yeah. Yeah, I guess my brain went off to the purity. The purity side, yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty hard to do laziness outside of purity. So they are very closely connected in that regard. It's not that you could do it. It's that I don't think anyone would want to try to do that. Like, I think you would shoot yourself in the foot real easily and get some pretty hard to debug problems if you weren't also pure. So. Right. What is quick check? Good question. Quick check is a way to quickly check types. Um, it, it's not really checking the types. It's it's uh, generating test cases for you ah. based on the types. So it says... Is it automatic property-based testing? 
Property-based testing is QuickCheck. QuickCheck is the ah. first implementation of what came to be known as property-based testing. Oh, cool. So the idea is you write a, a condition. The absolute value function never returns a number that's less than zero. So it's, it takes an int and returns an int. And there, it has a generator for ints. So um, QuickCheck built-in knows how to generate all kinds of different ints, right? And then QuickCheck goes, great. I'm going to, you know, hustle up a, a thousand integers and test each one of them against your condition that says they should never be less than zero. And it's going to try that with extremely large ints, small ints. It, there's a strategy for, like, how to find, like, the problematic cases. It tries to test the bounds. And if it finds one, uh, then it will shrink the test case set of numbers until it finds the exact test case that, that failed. So it's going to generate like a thousand of them, and then it'll eventually shrink that down to being like, hey, this one case uh, comes back, absolute uh, number wouldn't wouldn't fail. But uh, uh, Do you think that the quick check is also doing lazy evaluation in generating? I don't think so, because I think it's forcing all those to go through immediately, because it has to know that they've all passed. Oh, okay. It sounds like that's the benefit of it, right? Is that you're kind of putting everything in a strict sense. You're making sure, yes, that actually got called at some point, and we verify that it kind of works in some cases at least. Yeah, and when we talk about laziness, like laziness is like this in- internal state that things are in for a little while, but they pretty much, most of them become, or do get evaluated by the end of the program, or else like kind of what are they doing in the program if they never get used? It'd be like some variable that you declare and you calculate, but then never actually use for anything. That would be the only case in which something would be lazy and, and unevaluated throughout the whole course. So it's, you know, your stuff does get evaluated almost always. It's just a matter of when and under what circumstances does it get evaluated. The places where it might not get evaluated would be things like, um, let's say you're in an if and you have a flag that's like a debug flag, right? And in the case where uh, you're in this debug mode, you want to calculate these extra things. Well, you could hide all that inside your if, right? Guard a bunch of stuff with your if case. Or what you could do is you could just, let's say you you have a certain kind of calculation you want to do. So if we're in debug mode, we want to know this extra information about a user. So we need to go look up more information, go query and, and get extra stuff out of the database. We can write that query, like go get this extra information. We can write that and just put it in along with the rest of the variables we're going to use. Right, the, the other queries we want to do. So go get the main user information, get this, get that, and get this extra debug information. As if we're doing all of them. In, and in an imperative, like a, in a, st- a strict language, we would be doing all these things, right? Uh, then we get down to the, then we get down to our if. Basically, you would, you'd write your code as if you're always grabbing all the data you needed, right? Mm-hmm. And then instead of having your debug checks Deep in the, the leaves of your of your code, you know, you'd have it more towards the root. That would say, okay, I'm in debug mode. Now give me the variable that hangs off of that user that I would have gotten. And if I'm not in in the debug mode, then I wouldn't have even performed the calculation in the first place. I, I guess I would um, I would characterize it as the opposite of we're we're doing the check at the leaf. So it's like you do the mainline stuff you want to do, and then over here, if we're in debug mode, show this extra information. And in that case, you just use the variable that you declared earlier. You just use that value that, that got pulled in earlier and say, like, you know, render this thing, you know, render this uh, this extra data we got back from the database, right? So it's this tiny little bit of code that's like, if we're in debug mode, show this extra thing. But the thing is, if you don't hit that, 
then the value is never evaluated, therefore the database query is never made, therefore you save the cost. So like the thing never happens kind of a thing. And that's a little bit of a bad example because we're we're introducing an effectful operation in there, the, the querying of the database. It'd be more like um let's say we want to we, we've got our users and we want to do some expensive like uh give me the total uh like logged in time and we have to like traverse this big list and find all the entries that relate to that user and build up a some sort of user to number like tuple dictionary kind of thing, right? We don't want to do that if we're not actually in debug mode. So that dictionary, that that user to like time logged in or whatever uh, calculation never happens if we don't use it as to render something on the screen. And if we do need it, then it forces the, the evaluation right then. It does feel like you lose something, at least in this example, and maybe this isn't the fairest example. You lose kind of kind of some clarity in doing that because you've got these lines of code, you know, like you're you're running through your program and it's looking at what it does. And you see right there, like, oh, okay, go get this information. And I would think anyway, I mean, maybe that's something you adjust to as a functional programmer, but just to know, like, oh, okay, that's not actually ever happening because that only happens in debug mode. And so don't worry about, like, these lines. But there's no indicator there that those are debug only. That's debug only information. Yeah, the, the better example is definitely um, doing some sort of, like, map operation, some sort of aggregation operation. Um, you, you're just saying go calculate this new information, right, from from my results. Um and you shouldn't have to care if you're going to use that or not. You're just saying, like, the this is the way we go from a pile of user data to this actual interesting thing about time logged in. And so you've defined a function, and you're applying it to your user data to get the yeah. result. But you don't need to care if it's actually going to get used or not. See, most of the time, like Logan was saying, and I think this is what you are saying initially, you would have to do that check and then the calculation way down at your leaf where you actually want to use it. Or you'd have to move up to the root this extra, like, if we're in debug mode, prepare these things, otherwise prepare these other yeah. things. You'd have to, like, kind of branch early. Probably that's how we would write it. We'd say, if we're in debug mode, do this. If we're not, do that. And we might have some duplication between those two paths. Or we would take our logic and put it way out at the branch, at the leaf, where we don't really want it. We want it more at the root. Um, both those are, like, not great. With lazy evaluation, we're able just to say, here's the things I might be mm -hmm. using. You know, here's all the things that, that I want to calculate. And then, you know, whether they get used or not forces the evaluation. You can pass around heavy data sets and there's no penalty to it. Absolutely. Until you access it. Yes. You, so you can kind of be uh, naive in your usage of it in the good way of naive, of not having to make assumptions or to uh, sort of commit to a particular concreteness ahead of time. You can leave it uh, unevaluated or you can leave it open to evaluation in a variety of ways. There's some, there's some trade-offs to this stuff, right? Like... Um... From like a user experience perspective, if if I'm running some some browser application or some local application or something, and it goes and performs some very heavy operation, just kind of seemingly randomly, you know, something that we can't predict very well because we set everything up so that's lazy. A time consumption itself is kind of an effect that we don't always consider to be one, right? And that can influence, like, what the user experiences and be undesirable in some cases. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about disadvantages here in just a second. I have sure. um, I have just a cu couple more to hit here real quick. If you're in a language with lazy evaluation, um, one thing that you get for free is the ability to do control flow structures. So if in most languages is a keyword or, you know, some sort of built-in thing, right, a macro if you're in a Lisp, right? If you're in Haskell, it can actually literally just be a function because all of the stuff in the then or the else is all lazy. So it all gets deferred anyways. 
which is what you want to happen in an if-else, right? So you defer both those cases, both the branches, and then you only do the one that you care about. And that's literally just what happens. So you can write your own functions that do control flow style stuff where all the stuff you don't want to do is just automatically deferred because that's how everything in language works. And then you just force the value that you care about. So um, if it's just a function in Haskell, which is pretty cool. And then the, the last thing is sort of like, um, we, we talked a little bit about being able to do the, the naive, straightforward, dumb thing that, that seems obvious and let's just do it this way. And it kind of works out because you don't have to know how it's going to be used down the line. You can just hand back the gigantic, the logically gigantic data set that is in reality a deferred thunk. Oh, sorry. Uh, we, we didn't mention this earlier. You may have heard the word thunk before, especially if you're in JavaScript land with Redux. And the thunk is just a no argument function that produces a value. And it's a way to defer. You can take any calculation and put it as the body of a lambda with a zero argument with, with no arguments so that calling the function produces the value. That's a way to, to make anything deferred. Sometimes you'll hear people say it's been thunked. That, that's this deferred kind of format. I always thought thunking was the actual, like, captured, it hasn't been evaluated yet thing, like, like, uh, in, in C sharp, that link enumerable is the thunk. Yeah, that's right. So if it's been thunked, that means it's been put into this format where it can then very trivially be, evaluation can be forced on it. Got it. Got it. So it's in that form. In languages where everything's strict, we, we can't just pass along these theoretically giant data sets. But in a lazy language like Haskell, you can pass it along because it's really just this thunk, this deferred action that will happen when, when it's actually needed. And that allows you to do things like, like let's say you're writing an AI and your AI is doing, like for chess or something, and it's going to do this search pattern, right? It's going to like find the next, like find these best moves. And it could be pretty straightforward. It can kind of just pretend that it's going to search the entire search space. Uh, like, like na naively, like we'll just check every, you know, combination. Uh, and you don't actually have to worry that that's completely impossible <laughs> because you will only ask for, for some of them. You're only going to be producing some of these as you go. So you kind of have like one part of the strategy can be really naive and, and dumb and straightforward. And then there's another part that decides how much of it or in which ways it's going to use it. And and the coupling of those two make would, in most languages, those would have to be the same thing because their concerns are intertwined. And you couldn't do... Uh, you could just produce a bunch of values if you weren't actually going to use them on the other side, right? That would be dumb. You can't produce, you know, give me the next 500,000 moves or a million moves uh, in a conventional language. That's not going to work very well. But in Haskell, that's no problem because you're not actually going to produce that many. You're going to produce just the ones that you actually use. So it allows you to kind of de decouple so those things. with this just AI, just AI example, what you would probably do in a conventional format is, like, you'd have this long chain of logic that, like, Okay, well, I don't necessarily want to look through these moves, and, and you might like have this branching thing that kind of runs through the moves and figures out, okay, my highest priority sec, you know, like the best, best looking moves are if I move this piece first. And then you cut it down and say, okay, show me all the moves from that perspective, right? Is what you might do in a traditional AI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're going to do pruning. For yeah, sure. and yeah. so what you're saying is like, well, you don't, you, you're still ending up pruning on the, on the, on the, on the lazy side, but you don't have to, kind of worry about that so much because you get all the moves and then so you have like this potential list of all the moves and then you still find that best branch and that's what the one you're going to traverse down and so like that's what's going to get evaluated so right right you could say give me the first move of these thousand branches mm -hmm. 
and then you throw and and all those branches are written to just produce all the moves like all the way down the whole branch like to completely fill up that space um but but because you only ask for the first move from each one of them or the first five or something you look through them and you discard like most of the yeah, branches right away because it's like oh there's no value here no value here yeah you could model it as this like vast tree but you never actually have to compute the entire tree because exactly because you can shortcut exactly. out of it by saying well we've already made this move so you know we can start at this point in the tree Right, but it makes your branch construction logic much simpler because it doesn't have to worry about, like, short-circuiting or only doing a certain amount. And often I've seen with algorithms, if you don't have this lazy property, you often have to do the branch generation nested inside, like, three layers of if guards of your main traversal of your decision-making process. Like, you can't super easily, like, break those out and, and not make those concerns about each other. Um, that, that's what I've observed, and, and I've heard the same thing from a lot of other mm-hmm. people. Um, so in this case, it allows us to have more general algorithms that we can kind of just compose together. So you can use, you can view laziness as a aid c- composability. Mm-hmm. Like more things are composable because they are lazy. Because the evaluation order is now left unspecified and is decided by the caller, not the callee. Whereas in strict, the language has decided everything will be strict. So you, you just have to produce the values. So you have to be a much more guarded in what you produce in a strict language. What what did you mean by composable? I don't know if everybody's heard of this. Uh, so for composable, um, all I mean is the ability to use things together, even though they weren't strictly written, uh, no pun intended, they weren't uh, explicitly written to work together. So you could take two things and plug them in because they share, uh, they're compatible in a certain way. Like with functions, if the result of the first function, uh, the output of the first function has the same type as the input to the second function, we can hook those two together and have them have a new function where the out, uh, a value is run through the first function and then fed immediately in the second function and the output of that second function is what's returned. So we can kind of hook them together. Even though these functions know nothing about each other, they weren't written by the same people, they weren't intended to be used together. I always kind of like the, the idea of composable functions are a little bit more like Legos that you can kind of put together because they're designed to be that way, whereas sometimes you might like make this super amazing function that does all kinds of stuff. But it's a little, little more like the action figures, what Dave, you mentioned this in the previous episode, where it's like, wow, that's really cool, but it really only does one thing, and you can't, like, put the action figure on a Lego. I mean, I guess you could, but it doesn't really fit, and then nothing else is going to go on top of that. Yeah, if you have two action figures, it's unlikely you'll be able to take the arm off one action figure and fit it into the yeah. other one, right? I mean, maybe they're made so they're they're composable in that sense within a very narrow range, but um, functional programs tend to be a little bit more like a giant pile of Legos where you can build part of your program over here, Legos, part of your program over here, program over here, and then at the end still hook them all together because they continue to maintain this, like, you can hook infinite Legos on top of Legos and they're still Legos at the top. Like a really simple example is like taking like an add function and reduce and that combines together to make a sum. And, and which is still just a function that operates on lists kind of thing, right? You've taken your reduce function and sp- yeah, turned it to something, and then you could take that sum function and combine it with something else to make a Another function that still operates on lists, and you're just building it out of existing functions and just hooking them together. That is a good one to review, though, so thanks for asking that, Ken. Yep. Um, so, so talking about um, composability, this isn't maybe quite so about composability, but in terms of like refactoring or being able to break your program apart, the idea that we can take something, some operation that normally would have to be guarded or protected by some logic and just hoist it up at, into a different part of the program and be okay because that calculation taking place doesn't cost us anything. 
Like we only pay for what we use. So you're able to move code around, especially your calculations, not your, your logic so much about should this happen, but if this value were necessary, what would be the logic to produce it? You can put that pretty much anywhere, as long as it's in scope still, because it will only happen if you actually need it, where in any strict language, you cannot do that. You have to be very cognizant of, am I in the correct control flow branch to in which this thing should happen? Yeah, this is one thing that I just like, I beat this drum to my fellow engineers quite a bit, is like, it's really hard to screw up always and never. Um, the more checks and stuff that you put in your application, the more difficult, the more complex it gets. So if you can model it in such a way that it's just like, no, we just always do this thing, and then the computer figures it out, then that's the best, generally. So that's a very good point. All right, so we wanted to get on to some of the disadvantages. Uh, this is not a you know, panacea of, of programming here. Um, so let's go over some of the disadvantages of things where thunk, this sort of a deferred evaluation, thunked lazy evaluation um, strategy can kind of cause problems for us. And I think someone was mentioning... Um, not being able to predict stuff quite as easily. Predict uh, time spent. Time spent, yeah. So so you're going along. So we can imagine a uh, we've loaded some data set, and then we want to map over it and filter it and do this, like, big calculation and da-da-da-da. And at the line that we say X equals all that stuff, nothing actually happens, right? <laughs> we just move along to the next line. We're just the evaluation is just going through. Uh, but at some point, we do need that calculation to all happen. And let's say it's right as the user clicks the show me the results button. So the user's like, yep, show me the results. They go click, and then the computer goes, and the fan turns on, and then like you wait for three seconds, and then finally, boom, stuff pops up on the screen. And that's because, of course, the calculation didn't happen until you absolutely needed it when you were trying to put it on the screen. So this is definitely a case where... Um, Predicting the time, and I think maybe Logan, you were at, you were mentioning um, time complexity is not something we usually talk about. Uh, the effect the, of time. Oh, right? the effect of time as a, as an effect. Um, mm -hmm. Right, and it's a it's an effect not in the sense that it changes the meaning of our program, but it's an effect in that it changes the uh, observable behavior of the program. Right. Right, because uh, logic doesn't care that it took ten milliseconds instead of four. But a human sure does <laughs> in right. many cases. In, in cases of latency or user interfaces, you know, if, if I'm on a phone call, like, if, I, if things arrive in, like, weird orders and stuff, it, I don't care if it's lazy evaluated at that point, right? I just care that right. I'm Right. <laughs> you, could, you can't do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, definitely this is a case where people do sometimes get themselves into trouble, not, not in a they were being uh, – they were doing it wrong sense, but they get uh, kind of bushwhacked by the – the way it turns out, there's a whole bunch of these deferred thunks piled up on each other, and then all of a sudden they want to do the thing, and it takes a lot longer than they expect. And then the corollary to that is, is if um, while you're deferring all these operations, at least the the memory of we have these deferred operations, and when evaluated, this is what they will do, that does stick around in memory. So if you do some like recursive um, recursive operation on a list. And we defer all, all these thunks about like what we will do to each element in the list when we get there. Uh, we might end up with a large amount of memory from all these thunks. Whereas if we were strictly applying this operation to the list, we would only ever need memory for the new list that we're producing. Because we do the operation to the element and put it in the new list all the way through versus like building up all these thunks along the way. If you memoize a function that produces a thunk, is the thunk itself memoized or the computation that comes from it? 
I have no idea. Okay. I, I think that would be an internal uh, issue for Haskell. Uh, and I don't know um, if that's part of the spec or anything. Perhaps an exercise for the listener. The behavior is the same, I think, on the on the back end, of, or for, for, our, for us either way. I guess it depends on which one's more uh, expensive, right? So Haskell internally, I think, has a way of tracking, like, unevaluated to evaluated values. And you can share the thunked version like around to different threads and whatever, and then they'll all see it when it, if any one of them asks for the value, it will then be computed. If any one of them forces the evaluation, it'll be, sh that same value will be shared around to all of them. This also presents kind of a weird issue with debugging, right? Like, I, I my, my favorite, like, customer service kind of tool is like some kind of bug report button, and it, like, it, it captures the entire state of my my user's interface state mm -hmm. and bundles that up and sends that over. And then I can just unpack that and say, what, what was the disaster that happened here? Mm -hmm. But if you've got all these things that are hanging around in this kind of like limbo, you know, quantum computing state where you haven't determined what they are yet. And then I go ask for it because I need to figure out what everything was doing. I don't necessarily know that this is still in a thunk form versus not. So any language like in Haskell, there is no way it's going to give you not the right answer. What you would do is you would like to JSON everything at that point. You would serialize it. That would force the evaluation of everything, and then you'd move on. That actually would not affect you. Um, you wouldn't screw up in that sense. But it wouldn't tell me, like, what's actually being used as state right now versus, like, you just figured that out just before you sent it to me. But there should be no way that changes the meaning of the program. Like, there's nothing that could be going wrong because something was left thunked and unevaluated because that means nothing's using it. Like that's a that's an implementation detail. It's it's the same. It's at the same level of when I write a program in C sharp, is it using the certain matrix multiplication instruction that's available on this Intel processor? And it's like if if their code generation in their JIT uses it, my code just goes faster. And if they don't, my code just goes slower. It's like, but it doesn't change the meaning of my program. I still get the same result, but like the performance might be different. Um, but it, it's totally under the covers kind of a thing. So you'll never screw yourself over by having lazy evaluation in, in something like Haskell. If you were hand implementing this <laughs> in like JavaScript, yeah, I don't know that I would make those guarantees. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I was looking at more of like, do I have this like 10,000 record thing? Is it actually unpacked completely in memory or is it just sitting as a thunk waiting to be evaluated still? But why do you care? Because I don't want to have 10,000 records sitting in memory or whatever it is that Okay, I see what you're saying. You're, you're making a very good point. You go to capture the memory usage of the client, yeah. and at that point, you go and you serialize the state, and the state then has to reify, which is the term for, you know, making it real, right? So you have to, like, actually go compute all those things, and at that point, your memory usage jumps up 10x and that's the number that you get sent back and you go holy shit our client is doing awful things it's using all this memory and it's like well only because we asked it to did it compute all those things right and it may not have been obvious that asking it to give you the current state would have done that right that is a very good point um, so yes i think that was the case where you'd want to like get the memory usage first and then do your dump right and then you get a more realistic view we'd wrap that in a monad right um, that would only change the evaluation order. <laughs> or that would allow you to sequence the, the evaluation, I should say. Right, right. See, I listen to the cast. Oh, yeah. So you know all about monads. Right. Excellent. So, yes, uh, the 
un, in somewhat unpredictable um, size needs of the program, and then time time to evaluate a value are some of the problems that you run into with lazy evaluation. Usually, I see this come down to people are doing the straightforward thing that they think should work, and and, and by all means is the correct thing to do. And their memory usage is just way higher than they expect it to be. And they're going, what's going on here? And they go into a couple places, and they force the function to be strict, and their memory problems go back to normal. Like, that collapses down, because they find the function that was basically deferring a bajillion thunks just so that it could then evaluate them all back down again. So it's like creating this giant spike in memory, because it thinks, it doesn't realize that in a few seconds, you know, a few operations down the line, we are going to be using these things, so don't do it lazily, don't don't defer it, like actually do the calculation right now. So there are things in Haskell that will allow you to say, this needs to be strict right here. And so unlike languages like uh, C Sharp, where they went in, they said, well, this should be lazy here, and they, they have to add in laziness. Uh, in Haskell, you go in and you add in strictness, if you think it's necessary. Hmm. And, and that's probably the right overall decision, because um, if you have laziness everywhere, it's a bold claim there, but go ahead. This is a, this is a bold claim you're making all of a sudden. It's a bold claim. So in C++, you can have all of your classes inherit from the same base class, and thus they are all compatible with each other at some level, right? You can write a collection that takes an object, like my, my object, my base object type. But if you don't do that, if you have some libraries that are using this this base object that they're inheriting from and others over here. There's really no way to write a collection that holds both of those without like pointer casting nonsense, right? Uh, Java and C Sharp and Ruby and every other O language since then made the decision there is a base object. There's a base class. And everything inherits from that class. And so now they're all compatible at the at least this level. We can write a collection that holds this kind of thing, right? So at some level they are more compatible than they would have been if you didn't kind of force this decision on you. In Haskell, if you if your default is laziness, then everything can assume that everything else will only evaluate its produced values when absolutely necessary. So you can write your stuff in a way that depends on that. Whereas if you were implementing laziness ad hoc, like here and there, you really couldn't. You could say, well, I might return this to a function that's strict that's just going to evaluate it immediately and completely blow up the program because it's an infinite list. I have no guarantees. Like, I, I have to be in my own little world of laziness all the way through, and then I have to kind of exit that world and go back to the regular world. Whereas in Haskell, you're just always in that world. It sounds like it's got a lot of the allure that, like, a JIT does, but maybe not quite as magical or as complicated. I, I would, yeah, I would probably compare it more to, like, garbage collection. Even garbage collection still is like at some completely random time I'm going to take over and I'm just going to like clean up your memory, right? Whereas this is a little bit more like you actually have some control in being able to say, no, 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 evaluate this one right away. But most of the time, we're just going to default to letting the computer figure it out because it's usually smarter than you. Right, but I, I think that's very much how garbage collection is. If you need a very consistent garbage collection um, rate, you either plug in a garbage collector that's tuned for that or you call the collect operation on your garbage collector at a regular interval to kind of force it more to happen. In both cases, we're, we're saying, um, so th this is another compatibility kind of thing, right? So if you're in C++, I can't just hand something to you knowing that you will take care of it, like that you're going to handle this memory responsibly. If I hand this to you, that you're going to free it. Um, in, C++, in C Sharp, I don't care if you're going to free it. I just hand you the object, and then when you're done with it, you're done with it. When I'm done with it, I'm done with it. And the garbage collector figures it out. So in that sense that we are more compatible, our functions that we write 
don't have this concern. Um, that's what laziness does for us. It allows us to write these two functions that don't have to care if the other one's strict or lazy. I can definitely see how there's a wide variety of applications where it's almost always the right move to make. And then there's some where it's like they're still stuck in places where they're, you know, predictable performance is absolutely everything they have to have, like games. Even though there are games that are garbage collected nowadays and stuff, it's still kind of like, well, if you don't do object pooling, you see the results of it when the garbage collector runs eventually, right? Yep. And, you know, there, there's been NASA applications that's like, the device has lost power. You have a limited amount of charge that's kind of like incapacitor time left, and you have to write out your state before you completely lose all your power. Go. Right. And it's like you, you don't have time to garbage collect or lazily evaluate during those moments, right? Yeah, I don't think we're going to see a this used in its current form for like a real-time operating system or things like that, right? It's not going to be choosing to deploy your airbags in your car. You don't need it yet. But but again, <laughs> it, it's an implementation detail. So you could take a lot of Haskell code, could be converted over to use a strict evaluation strategy and still work. Now that we obviously could do that for most for um, for everything because there are things that me zipping the infinite list with the with the uh, you know the finite list, those kinds of things would break down if we change the evaluation strategy. But it's not like we couldn't um, take parts of our program and make them consistent and predictable if we needed them to be. Okay. All right. So some algorithms are sort of designed to be strict. They, they're sort of designed with that mindset. And you, you might have to retweak the way you're doing things if you want it to work well in a lazy environment. And then a little bit of vice versa of like, if you're doing the naive thing, you might have to force strictness occasionally. So it's, it's one, one thing to be aware of in the same way that with GC, we were able to forget about certain things. Like we don't have to worry about these things now, but we kind of gained new things like GC pressure and the idea of like how much uh, garbage pressure you're putting on your garbage collector such that triggers collections more often is a new thing that we kind of have to think about. But we got a lot of stuff in trade, like the, the not composability, but the compatibility of a lot of objects. Okay, and, and then the last sort of like downside is that clearly at the end of the day, not everything can be lazy because we have to force. If everything's lazy, then nothing happens. It's that theoretical, the the box, and in Logan likes to say the box get warm, gets warm and then nothing happens if you don't have, like, I.O. In this case, the box doesn't even get warm. So nothing happens. It's all lazy. <laughs> right? I guess we allocate a bunch of memory. That that happens, right? We don't actually do any of the computations. So we have to force strictness at some point. So some part of your program will be strict. Like, the main method or the main function of your program is going to be strict, right? It's going to force the actual evaluation. Um, anything I.O. Uh, must be strict. Uh, in Haskell, all the I.O. Uh, pretty much is strict. Um, that's Haskell generally is the regarded. same thing, right? Say again? The main and your, your entry point are also... Your entry point in Haskell is I.O. It is of type I.O. It doesn't have to be yeah. main, because main could is just a function that right. produces data, so you could... But whatever your entry point is, is like that's always an I.O. That's always an I.O., yeah, and strict. Yeah. Uh, because we definitely care that the side effects that we're carrying out happen in the order prescribed, because that's often pretty important. Okay, so if we're not in a Haskell-type language, we've mentioned C-sharp, uh, Java probably does this lazily. I actually never confirmed that. If we're in, not in those languages, we can still use these kinds of techniques that we've been talking about, like our infinite streams or the sort of lazily evaluated, lazily loaded things. Those would often be under the name of a generator. Generator is this pattern that happens where you're able to, like, every time you're called, you produce another value, and then you stop even though you're in the middle of a while loop, usually you have some sort of yield keyword. So it's like you have a Fibonacci function, 
and inside the function, it you know sets the initial value, and then it does the first calculation, and then it yields that value. And then when it's called again, it resumes, it loops around, calculates the second value, yields that value, pauses, and so every time you call it, you get the next value. That is in a set uh, that is uh, emulating much of what a um, like a lazy collection, like a lazy list would be. And so you could implement like a list on top of that if you wanted to. That's interesting because when I hear about all the crazy things you can do with generators in JavaScript, it's actually not crazy things, it's crazy things. It's always like, oh, now you can write promises sequentially. <laughs> right. All your async actions this way. But it sounds like there's more that you can do with it. Yeah. I do remember uh, doing work in Unity, which is done in C Sharp, and it used that ienumerable yield thing, which was a little weird, but once you've wrapped your head around it, it's like you write very sequential-looking code that just goes and, like, defers things and says, no, wait, don't go and do any more of the rest of this function until later. Yeah, so that's the same thing as a generator, like in JavaScript or Python, mm-hmm. the yield from c Basically, every time I ask you for a value, because it's an ienumerable, right, so you can get the next value from it. Yeah. So every time you say next, it runs a little bit more of your code, produces value, and then stops. That is a classic lazy evaluation right there. And that's because behind the scenes, it's basically thunking everything. Yeah, I mean, in the C-sharp example, it actually, where the yield happens, it breaks up your function into multiple other functions and then wraps a bigger function around it that remembers which part of it you were in right. and then keeps calling that part of Like each one of those is like a thunk yeah. effectively. Yeah, yeah effectively, yeah. Um, and it remembers the state, the local state of where you were at, that kind of thing, and maintains that. So generators, broadly speaking, are the way that most uh, sort of imperative stateful Funct- uh, languages get something like laziness. You could do the thunk style thing where you just pass around a bunch of these zero argument functions. That's also, you could build that in. That's very problematic though, because as soon as you hit any function that doesn't expect that style, you're going to evaluate the whole chain. Yeah, as you mentioned, it feels like this is a little more useful if your language systematically uses laziness and you evaluate, you set, you set things as strict when you want to, as opposed to the opposite. And, and you can't even, like in C-sharp, you can't say, like, make this lazy, really. You, you're saying, like, yeah, you can use a generator to, to make something similar, but you still, it's still not the same thing as saying, this function is lazy, this function isn't. Right. The, the best you're going to have there, so C-sharp is better than most in that um, they did actually build in kind of the concept of laziness into ienumerable. Mm-hmm. So ienumerables are allowed to be lazy if they want to be um, by using mm-hmm. the yield. If your function returns an ienumerable, you can yield, and you're not actually returning the ienumerable. It just kind of boxes all that behavior together, and then you get that. It's just the thing that consumes it needs to sit there and pump it with next in order to get the stuff out. But, no, I think it's still an ienumerable. It's just an ienumerable that, when called, will resume your continuation. Right, but you don't return like an, an you don't return any kind of structure like that. It's, it's, it's sugared away from you. You don't see that. But... But thunk is an ienumerable, basically. Yes. That's the thing. It's an interface so that right. you can have this generator structure that has the ienumerable interface, or you can have a list. Like, they're both the same thing. The list is totally concrete and can be iterated over like anything, where your generator looks the same. So in that respect, C-sharp actually did a pretty good job of enabling this kind of thing, broadly speaking. Okay. At least for collection okay. things. They just probably don't talk, they don't talk about it very much. Yeah, I don't think it's... Super used in that sense. I would say the Unity coroutine example is a pretty good example of using ienumerables um, for something that's not a collection, but is instead a process. Right? Like keep running this process like one tick at a time until we're done, like one frame at a time. Uh, but yeah, any kind of 
infinite lazy thing, or it doesn't have to be infinite, any kind of lazy thing you want to do, if you hide it behind an I interface, or I know. Sorry, an I enumerable yeah. interface, uh, you will get the option for this laziness by using yield. So if you if you want to go mess with what this looks like, that's a pretty good place to start. Okay. All right, that's all I've got. I have to address something that came up earlier that I, I've held in until now, which is to use the phrase, that's how it works under the covers. I think the phrase is under the hood. I don't, I don't know that there's a phrase that, like, that's how it works under the covers. Well, that's a slightly different discussion. <laughs> Depending on how you, you run your household, right? Under the hood, yes. Um, really? You've never heard of Well, house? I mean, not, not in this context. Not in that context? We no. know exactly where Aaron's head is right now, because I was not thinking about that. That stuck <laughs> with me from that moment. Excellent. Isn't it under the hood? Yep. All right. Thank you all for joining us uh, for this episode. We will be back next time. Thank you, everyone. It was great to be here. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Bye.